Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you all here today. What an extraordinary thing just to be led in worship by Phil. Yes, is that right? Phil. And, and then to talk about seeing God's face and then to have, as a manifestation of that, the ability to move right into the sacrament of communion where we see a picture of God. All of us, I think, in many ways see God as powerful, but the God that is revealed through Christ on the cross is a God who is also humble and allows himself to suffer. And so to see God's face in his broken body and blood is an extraordinary picture of God's heart for us in the midst of that picture. So anyway, I'd like to start with a, with a, a fairly obvious question, but a question nonetheless. I'd like you to ask you to consider uh, why you've come to church this morning, or why in general do you get up on a Sunday morning and come to church in the first place? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of good reasons why we might show up here, might want to experience some teaching that is, that is nourishing. We might enjoy worshiping God, and that's a significant part of, of, of being in a community that has Christ as its focus. Uh, many of us come to a place like this uh, to, to get to know people, to develop significant relationships. Church is a great place to do that. And those things are all extraordinary and good things for us as we come into a place like this. And yet, those are all secondary issues, yes? Teaching, worship, meeting other people. I think fundamentally, at the core of who we are as human beings, we desire a connection. We're seeking something beyond ourselves. We have a desire in some way to come face to face with God, to seek God, to even maybe more profoundly say, to seek ultimate reality, capital R. And that desire, that hunger for connection, that desire that we have to connect is a fundamental aspect of what it means to be a human being made in the image and likeness of God. To desire connection is fundamental to our humanity. Uh, The author of Ecclesiastes says it in this way. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, it's a short little passage, Ecclesiastes 3.11. It comes in that part of Ecclesiastes where we're told there's a time for everything, a time to live, a time to die. When you get to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, the author of of Ecclesiastes has this to say about God. It says, and will you read along with me out loud? Uh, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Now, do you hear what's being said there? This is an extraordinary thing. We are finite human beings, yes? We are. And yet God has placed in the center of our being infinity. We hunger for that which is beyond us. To be human is to be a finite being and to hunger for something infinite. And even though we have this this desire at the core of our being, this hunger for infinity, we are yet unable to fathom the reality of what that means. In a sense, what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying is we're finite beings who have a deep and profound longing for God. To connect to God is fundamental to our humanity. Now, some people are more aware of this desire, this infinite hunger that exists at the core of our being than others are. And so many people go through life with this infinite hunger and spend their life trying to feed that infinite hunger with finite things. Even things like teaching, worship, 
and making real good connections with other human beings. Other people are less subtle. Money, career, status, sexuality, all these things can become ways that in some small way tap our infinity. The creator, the creator piece of who we are. And yet, never does it fully engage us in the way that we've been meant to be engaged. Some people are more aware of this desire for God and have spent their lives stoking this hunger that they may know and experience God more deeply. In fact, I think that's what we were getting at when we read Psalm 27. David, he's this extraordinary man who is not perfect. In fact, David's hunger for infinity, his his hunger for God is often short-circuited by his grabbing after things that will feed his hunger right now. Yes, we know David's story in that way. And yet God says of him, here is a man who is after my own heart. And I think we can see some of that in Psalm 27. The psalm begins, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Then when we were singing that song, Show Me Your Glory, or when we were worshiping to it, as the band led us in it, we get to this place in Psalm 27, verses 7 through 9, and it's an extraordinary expression of one man's desire for God. The desire to know and be known. And so we read, Hear my voice when I call to you, Lord Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, that infinite part inside me, when it speaks, here's what it says. Seek your face. The emotional, relational aspect of my humanity, David is saying, is crying out for God. But it's not just enough that his heart and his emotions are engaged. He says, your face, Lord, will I seek. So his hunger is desire after God. It's mirrored in David's life by an activity of his will. Your face, Lord, will I seek. Therefore, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. The whole trajectory of David's life is this pursuit of God. This hunger and desire to experience the goodness of God. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, will I seek. Do not turn your face away from me. Uh, The the author A.W. Tozer, this great man after God's heart who's from Chicago in the 1930s and 40s, says this about the desire after God to have found God and still pursue him, to have come to God and then spend an entire lifetime In ongoing pursuit of God, this is the soul's paradox of love. If you come near to the holy men and women of the past, you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking We must pursue God. And so the question comes, and we've already answered it in some ways, seeking what? Over and over and over again, the refrain, seek his face. The call and the desire to see and seek the face of God. If you read the Hebrew scriptures over and over and over again, 
always that refrain, the Israelites seeking the face of God. Why is the face so important? Folks, hardwired into human beings is the desire to seek out faces. Hardwired into our humanity is the desire to seek out faces. From the earliest moments of life, human infants look and scan for a human face. And when they are small and impressionable, there is only one face that will satisfy them, yes? It's the face of their mother. Human infants, from the moment they're given birth, seek out face. And that face, what they find when they look up and see a face staring back at them, orders their entire cosmos. The way that we're created, we seek face from the earliest moments of our lives. And what we find looking back to us orders our entire world. God gives children the gifts of parents so that when children look up, they see a reflection of love and presence and goodness. Unfortunately, in our world, oftentimes, parents are looking down to their infants to tell them who they are. And that's a fundamental distortion of what God intends. That when a child looks into its parents' face... What they're to see reflected there is their belovedness and their worthiness and the presence of somebody who is there. We are made to face and to be faced. As human beings, we are made to face and to be faced. To spend your life seeking God's face is to be imprinted at the core of your being with God's glory And his love. When we spend our lives seeking out the face of God, what we're seeking to do is be imprinted by the face of God. You know the story of Moses. We've read the passage of Scripture this morning. Moses goes up to see God. The word for glory, we're told he's, he, he comes into, into the presence of God and he's met by his glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. Do you know what the actual meaning of the Hebrew word kavod is? Weight. He's impressed by the weight of God. God's presence weighs on Moses. It's why he falls to his face. The weight, the glory of God presses on him. And so when Moses comes down from the mountain, what are we told about the the face of Moses? Anyone? It's reflecting the glory of God. The glory of God, by Moses seeking his face, even seeking indirectly, presses on him, and his own countenance is transformed. Moses has had his cosmos ordered in God's glory and love, and to spend one's life as a child of God, seeking the face of our Father, is to have our entire cosmos ordered in such a way that our, our countenance is transformed. We experience the glory of God and we begin to convey the glory of God through our face to others. Again, that's what Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. God's glory is made manifest 
in the face of Christ. Now, the Hebrew word for face is panim. Can you say that with me? Panim. Okay, and like all words, it has a range of meaning. So one possible translation of panim in the Hebrew is face, but it's actually not enough of a definition to get the full sense of what's going on when the Hebrew word panim is used. An actually better translation for panim is the word presence. So we use face, and why faces are so important is because faces mediate presence. You know if somebody's with you and you're having a conversation with them when they're making what with you? Eye contact. When somebody is talking to you and doing this and looking past you, what do you know? They're not present. It's one of the most devaluing things you can do to a person. To be there and to pretend as if you are in their presence, but to be moving beyond them already. As parents, it's the easiest thing in the world to do with our children, isn't it? To not be present, but to be present. To not convey value because we're thinking about 25 other things that are coming down the road. Why are faces so important? Because they mediate something deeper. Presence. When we are facing and being faced, we experience presence. And in that encounter, life. Because as human beings made in the image of a God who reveals himself in the trinity of relationships, we are made to face and to be faced. It's fundamental to our humanity. We are made to experience presence, to encounter the glove and glory that we were made for as human beings. See, I think that's what's going on in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, the presence of God. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We are made for presence. To be present, to be here now, to encounter God's presence, we are made for that. And we are made to host the presence of God. We are made to be present to encounter God's presence and to host in ourselves presence, to host the presence of God. And that could be an extraordinary, glorious, and transforming thing. But you know what else, real honestly? It can be fairly scary and overwhelming as well. Especially if you, when you were a child, had your countenance or your face imprinted not in glory and love, but in lies and shame. When children are not given the gift of presence, of love, of their glory, then oftentimes what happens is we have a disordered perception of who we are. And so we spend our lives looking to have our our face illuminated. We often also spend our lives doing what David asked God not to do, and that is hiding our faces. David often asked the refrain, why is, your, why is my soul downcast? Why is my countenance down? To have your countenance imprinted in lies and shame is tragic. And so we actually read then again in the, in the psalm, Psalm chapter 3, verse 3. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. 
my glory. And look at this picture. You are the lifter of my head. The images of a person through shame and lies who has allowed themselves to walk through life like this for fear of looking up again and only experiencing rejection. And the psalmist says, You, O Lord, are a shield around me. Am I my glory? No, you're my glory. You've lifted my countenance. And now as I seek your face, you're transforming my understanding of who I am and who I am to be. A human being whose entire cosmos is rooted in the pursuit of God through the seeking of his face that we ourselves might know God's glory and be bearers of the glory, be image bearers, and know our belovedness. To know that we are agapetos. The Greek word agape, love, agapetos, beloved. One of the words often used to describe God's people in the New Testament letters, agapetos. Beloved ones, those whose cosmos is ordered in glory and in love. You know, I'd like to take this talk about presence and talk about it in a way that I think is kind of important. You know, I think prayer is about presence. I think we often think about prayer as something we do. And it is true that when we pray, we're doing something. But prayer is not fundamentally about talking. Prayer is fundamentally about engaging presence, yes? Prayer is fundamentally about the engagement of presence, coming face to face to be imprinted with love by God. Prayer is about engaging reality, if God is ultimate reality, capital R. One of my favorite authors is this guy named Henry Nouwen. And he's written a book called Reaching Out. And now it describes three movements that happen in the heart of a human who begins to seek God and be sought by God. It says the first movement is the movement from loneliness to solitude. Prior to knowing God, we are often lonely. And then try to get out of that loneliness. He says it's not that we're never alone anymore, but there's a movement in our spiritual lives when we know God from loneliness to solitude. The ability to be with God alone. He says the the second movement is the movement from hostility to hospitality. Instead of viewing other people with suspicion and fear, we begin to have an overflow of space in our lives to welcome people in and to allow them to experience the goodness of presence. And then the the third and final movement of the spiritual life, he talks about moving from illusion to reality. Now, that's an extraordinary thing, right? Because most people would say that if you're in prayer, prayer's the illusion. You can't see who you're talking to. You're talking about things that nobody else can perceive. And so that's illusion. So you move out of reality into illusion when you move to prayer. But it's just the opposite. Prayer moves us out of the illusory world and into the reality of the presence of of God. Prayer is about engaging reality through the presence of God. We are made for presence, which is another way of saying that we are made for prayer. Not as something we do, but as something we are. We are living prayers. 
prayer not as something we do, but as something we are. If that's not the case, then what in the world is Paul saying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18? Rejoice evermore. Read with me this, this line. Pray without ceasing. How's that working out for you? I've probably heard that preached on a number of times, and there are actually people that says we should constantly be going around having an inner dialogue with God all the time, interceding. More power to him, and I mean more power to him. That's not. Uh, that's right. There needs to be an ongoing dialogue that is open with God. Does it always have to be cognitive? No. Paul is saying, understand in the core of who you are, you are made to host presence of God. You walk around constantly in the presence of God. And so turn your heart at all times and in all ways towards God. Not as something you do, but in a recognition of something that you are. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ concerning you. It's a different way of understanding What's going on? And I think that's really critical. Another author who I, who I love and learn a lot from is a man named Richard Rohr. He's written a book called Everything Belongs. And in terms of talking about this presence of God and beginning to recognize that, especially as it relates to prayer, Rohr says this, My starting point is that we are already there. You hear that? My starting point is that we're already there. We cannot attain the presence of God. Why not? Because we're already totally in the presence of God. What's absence is awareness. There is no time when we are not fundamentally saturated in the presence and the reality of God. We live in a God-soaked universe. Oftentimes, though, we live unaware of the presence and reality of God's Spirit in all things. Little we, what's absence is awareness. Little do we realize that God is maintaining us in existence with every breath we take. As we take another, it means that God is choosing us now and now and now. We have nothing to attain or even learn. We do, however, have to do some unlearning, yes? Yeah. Yeah. Prayer is something we are. And it's also something the Spirit of God is doing in us. It's also something the Spirit of God is doing in us. It's what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do, know no, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So prayer is not just something we do, it's something we are. It's also something that God's Spirit is doing in us. 
That the responsibility and the initiator of prayer is not ourselves. It's God's spirit alive and at work in us to help us to discover and to will the things of God. Prayer is a manifestation of God's spirit alive and at work in us to be present again, to be here now, to engage God's presence and to host presence. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God in us. When the author of Ecclesiastes says he has set eternity in the human heart, what is that if not another way of saying God has placed the Spirit of God in us? To push us and propel us forward into God's presence. In Christ, we become the temples in which God's Spirit or presence now dwell. that we might experience union. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through, Jesus, he has, through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Do you get that? This is an extraordinary thing that I think oftentimes we take way too little awareness of. We have way too little awareness of. That we as followers of Jesus are not just separated, God over there, us over here. What Peter is saying is that we are ourselves, our very essence, has commingled with God's very essence. Just in the same way God became human, God is making of us himself. God is forming us in his image and allowing his essence to mingle with us. We are participants in the divine essence. He has set eternity in the human hearts. Eternity in the hearts is another way of saying we host the presence of God in Christ. Now, here's the thing that's really challenging about that. Until we discover this presence, we are tempted to misuse all the other manifestations of presence in our lives. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Why is Paul having to write write this? Because he's confronting a church struggling with the problem of sexual immorality. Misusing presence. Until we understand the reality of who we are and what God is doing in us, it's often tempting for us to misuse presence, to settle for lesser experiences of other human beings apart from God's protective covenant for how our sexuality should be used, yes? But that's why I think the Holy Spirit is called comforter and counselor, another way of describing the presence of God within us. Just a couple more quotes and then we'll wind up. Henry Nouwen, again, has this to say about presence. This desire, before we know God and his abiding presence with us, that forces us into relationships in ways that are disordered. It is this most basic human loneliness that threatens us and is so hard to face. Too often we will do everything possible to avoid the confrontation with this experience of being alone. And sometimes we are able to create the most ingenious devices to prevent ourselves from being reminded on this condition. Our culture has become most sophisticated in the avoidance of pain. 
Not only our physical pain, but our emotional and mental pain as well. We not only bury our dead as if they were still alive, but we also bury our pains as if they were not really there. We have become so used to this state of anesthesia that we panic when there is nothing or nobody left to distract us. When we have no project to finish, no friend to visit, no book to read, no television to watch, or no record to play, and when we are left all alone by ourselves, we are brought so close to the revelation of our basic human aloneness and are so afraid of experiencing an all-pervasive sense of loneliness that we will do anything to get busy again and continue the game that makes us believe that everything is fine after all. This is why Nowen talks about the first and fundamental movement of the spiritual life, the movement from loneliness that drives us to behave in these ways to solitude. The ability to be there and know that we are hosting the presence of God and so we are never again truly ever alone. We are faced and being faced Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, theologian, and mathematician, says this, All man's troubles result from his inability to sit quietly alone in a room. In prayer, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, we are imprinted with the glory and love of God so that we discover a radical presence such that we are never ever alone again, that we can be present, we can be here now, not spending our lives living in an unretrievable past or living projected forward into a fearful future, but to be present, to encounter and engage the presence of God and to host the presence of God within us. Seeking the face of God See, seeking presence is not always something that we're doing out there. Seeking the presence of God often happens right here. Do you not know that he has sent eternity in the human heart? You know, so many times sermons end with the challenge to do something. I'm going to end this sermon with a challenge to not do something, but rather to heed the admonition of Psalm 46.10. Read with me, please. Be still and know that I am God. Again, be still and know that I am God. 